Hey everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Crime. If you're new here, I'm Lena Waters. Here we talk about all things true crime from solved to unsolved cases. Whether you're listening to the podcast or on YouTube, my hope is to spread the word about cases that need to be solved or learn what we can from other solved cases. So if you like this episode, share it where you can so you can spread the word too. So today we're going to be talking about the Lacey Peterson case and if her husband, Scott Peterson, is really guilty or not. It's definitely debated and I feel like people tear each other apart, so please don't do that. Um, I'm going to admit I'm completely torn. I... I just don't know. I don't know if I could convict this man beyond a reasonable doubt that he did it. But at the same time, there's there's definitely some sketchy behavior going on. And we're going to get into all of it. But I just, I don't know. I don't know. So let's just skip my torn emotions and let's get into it. Scott is sitting in San Quentin prison right now on death row, waiting for an appeal. Um, recently, his life sentence was just overturned, and in November, they're going to determine if he will get life or death again. But his appeal has not been completely processed or um, determined if he will get a new trial or not, so that that's also could happen. So we're going to be talking about what came out during the, you know, kind of the initial part of Lacey's disappearance and then what new information has come out today. Um, I watched like all of the documentaries about this and I'm going to admit right now they're definitely biased. Like the, they will persuade you to believe in what they want. And that's why I'm so torn. Like I'm definitely a visual learner. So I like to watch documentaries, but, um, and especially because the court, and especially because the trial wasn't televised, there's no video recordings of it anywhere. It's, it's hard because reading transcripts, you know, you don't, you don't get the emotion in people's voices. You just kind of have to assume what's happening. So who were Scott and Lacey Peterson before they were blasted all over the media? Scott Peterson was raised in San Diego and he was born in 1972. His parents, Lee and Jackie Peterson, were upper middle class. They definitely raised Scott to have a really great upbringing and good childhood, but Jackie didn't have such a great childhood herself. Her father was killed when she was just two years old for about 200, I've seen 200 and I've seen $400 of money and she was sent to an orphanage. Um, her mom couldn't take good care of her, really. So she basically bounced around from home to home. And she didn't really know how to be a mother. She didn't really have one. So when she started to have children of her own, she adopted out many of them. And I think that she gets a lot of heat over this. Um, when people talk about Jackie Peterson... I feel for her. I don't, I don't know why, but I just think that the way that you're raised and that she didn't have that great of a childhood kind of made her who she is today and very protective of her son. And a lot of people really come after her for that. And she's not alive anymore. Um, I don't know. I don't think Jackie is a bad person by any means. Um, but anyway, so once she finally had Scott, she was like, all right, I'm going to keep this one. And she definitely was so happy that she did. Scott was known to be a great kid and always, you know, calm, respectful, polite, just a, a nice kid. So him and his father were definitely avid golfers and Scott would become one of the top golfers in San Diego, which gave him this dream of becoming a pro professional golfer one day. Scott would go to the Arizona State University on a partial scholarship for golf, but he was kicked off the team for drinking and partying. 
I'm going to go. Scott returned to California and he attended the, I can never say this, the California Polytech. I know it's Polytechnic, something like that, but I always just say California Poly University. And he studied agricultural business where he would meet at the time, Lacey Rocha, who would become Lacey Peterson. Lacey Peterson, born in 1975 to Sharon and Dennis Rocha, also with an older brother, Brent. Lacey's parents owned a dairy farm where Lacey would learn to grow her love of plants and the outdoors. Lacey's parents, Sharon and Dennis, did eventually divorce when Lacey was only one and her, Sharon, and Brent would move to Modesto, California. But Lacey and her brother Brent definitely still had a good relationship with their father, Dennis. They would go to their dads every weekend and they would get to be on the farm and definitely enjoy their time with their dad. Sharon married again when Lacey was two to Ron Gransky and he would definitely act as a big father role for Lacey. He really loved her and he helped raise Lacey. After graduating high school, Lacey also attended the California Polytechnic University. She studied ornamental horticulture, which is kind of more like the design and decoration and using plants for that, not just kind of how to grow plants like regular horticulture. She was really into this and she was known to be a great decorator. If you see pictures of her house, it's, it's really pretty. It's beautiful. While both Scott and Lacey attended the same college, Lacey saw Scott working at one of the local cafes and she decided to give him her number. Scott thought this was kind of a joke. He didn't, he didn't take it seriously and he threw a number out. So the next time Lacey saw him, she was like, hey, dude, why didn't you call me? And then they kind of, everyone just says that they fell in love right from the get-go. And Lacey would call her mom and be like, mom, I found the man of my dreams. I am going to marry this man. And Sharon responded to Lacey and was like, did you even go on a date yet? And Lacey said no, that they hadn't, but they will. And they did. Like Within a week, Scott took Lacey out on a boating trip where Lacey would get seasick and they still loved each other. And within two years, they would be married. Lacey had two months left until she graduated, and I believe Scott had another semester or, or another year. The two married on August 9th, 1997. Around this same time, Scott would meet his half-sister, Anne, and his half-brother, Don. Don actually got in contact with Anne and said, Hey, I think, we, I, think I found our biological mother, and if you would like to meet her, I have her number. And so the two met, Jackie didn't really explain why she adopted them, but they did grow a relationship and that included Scott. Scott was known as the golden boy, you know, the golden son. He was a great guy. Um, his family really did put him on a pedestal. And when Anne met Scott, she understood why. He was very, like I said, very polite, very kind and very helpful too. After both Scott and Lacey graduated, they opened a restaurant called The Shack. Scott used his knowledge from his business degree as well as being a waiter in college while Lacey was responsible for decorating their new restaurant in a really appealing way. It was really cute. Lacey was always known to be a good cook and a good host. Her mom said that she would make the best housewife ever and she did. They sold the shack in 2000 so that they could have enough money to start a new life in Modesto so that they could settle down and start a family. Now, it's kind of rumored that Scott didn't want to do this, and I don't blame him either because his parents lived nine hours away from Modesto, and Modesto was also Lacey's hometown. Like, Scott wasn't really familiar and I feel like he was kind of scared to move somewhere where he didn't really know anyone other than Lacey's, you know, people attached to Lacey. There's a lot of people who also think that Modesto is this quiet little sleepy town where 
nothing ever happens. And, you know, Lacey's disappearance was this huge thing that, you know, the biggest thing that ever happened to Modesto. But it's just like any large city. And Modesto's population was 200,000 people. And that's, that's pretty large in, in my opinion. <laughs> I come from a, like a really small town and the closest city to me has 60,000 people where the crime rate is not the best either. So I could imagine a city with 200,000 people and, you know, things happening that happen in like every city. You know, burglaries were pretty common and we'll get into some some weird stuff that was happening before Lacey disappeared too. Some nicknames for Modesto are meth, murder, and car theft, and also methdesto. So if that doesn't tell you that, you know, some people really look down on Modesto. If Now there were definitely some, you know, really cute, like cul-de-sac communities and stuff, but there was also this, you know, part of the city where it wasn't, it wasn't a great place to be sometimes. But the couple moved anyway, and they moved into a really nice house. Um, I mean, three years after graduating and the house that they moved into, it, it was nice. Lacey became a substitute teacher and Scott got a job with an international fertilizer company, but it definitely did require him to travel often. In 2002, the couple learned that they were pregnant. And it would be a baby boy named Connor who would be born in February of 2003. So how did this family, who were just finally starting to settle down, have a new boy, have a new baby boy, end in such tragedy? On December 23rd, the day before Lacey went missing, she went to go see her sister, Amy Rocha, where she was working at a salon. Scott was getting his hair cut and Amy just wanted to see her sister. She asked if she could show her this one hairstyle and maybe she could do it the next day for Christmas Eve. The two were talking about their plans for the next day. Amy said that she wanted to get their grandfather a gift basket, but someone needed to be home so that they could pick up the items for the basket. Scott offered to pick these items up. He was appreciative. She had to work early the next day so before they left the salon, Scott asked Amy if she wanted to come over some for some pizza. Um, but Amy said that she couldn't, that she had plans for that night, and she had to work early the next morning too. So the two left, and that was the last time Amy would see her sister Lacey alive. When they got home, they put on their PJs, ate some pizza. Lacey called her mom, and they watched a movie afterwards until 11 o'clock before they fell asleep. Around seven the next morning, Lacey got up and ate some cereal, and then Scott would wake up about an hour after Lacey did. Now it's uncertain what time Lacey actually woke up, but Scott is assuming around seven o'clock. They watched a Martha Stewart segment about meringue cookies or something about meringue, and then they talked about their day. Lacey planned on walking their dog Mackenzie and making some gingerbread cookies. Um, she was also gonna go to the store to start her brunch for the next morning. She was gonna make some kind of French toast. And Scott said that he was gonna go fishing that day. Now Scott initially planned to go golfing and that's what he told a lot of people, but it was pretty cold and wet. So he decided that he was gonna go fish with his new boat that he had just bought within the past two weeks. Around 10 a.m., Scott leaves to go fishing as Lacey is mopping the floor. Now this is pretty speculated because do we actually know if Lacey was the one mopping the floor? No, we don't. But Scott said that this was something that Lacey did every single day, even though that they did have a housekeeper who had mopped just the day before. But like I said, Scott said this was something that Lacey did every single day. They did have a dog, Mackenzie, and they also had two cats. Scott's boat warehouse was about nine minutes away from their house. So he arrived there around 10.08 a.m. and he listens to a voicemail from his boss. And this is actually corroborated by phone records. 
from 10.30 to 10.56, Scott computer records show that he is on his computer, he's sending an email to his boss, and he's also looking up instructions on how and how to assemble a woodworking tool that he ju had just bought. So after he gets his boat ready and prepared to go onto the water for the first time, he travels to the Berkeley Marina, which is 90 miles away in the San Francisco Bay. Now, this is also kind of suspicious because Scott's boat was meant for fish water and not salt water, which the San Francisco Bay was. Scott's boat was also pretty small. It wasn't a large fishing boat. It wasn't some kind of big pontoon boat. It was just a small aluminum fishing boat. And the San Francisco Bay could get pretty choppy. Um, it wasn't, his boat just wasn't meant for this, okay? But he gets a parking ticket, not like in a bad way, but just a ticket to park somewhere at 12.54 p.m. at the Berkeley Marina. Now, apparently, there's also some more suspicions. We're gonna get into all the suspicions, okay? We're not, I'm not gonna leave anything out. At least I'm gonna do my best. The drive to the Berkeley Marina from his warehouse could take about an hour and 20 minutes to an hour and 45 minutes without traffic. But it was Christmas Eve and there usually are a lot of people on the road around this time of year. So I, I don't know. Cause he left at, the last time he was known to be on his computer was 1056. But if he arrived at the Berkeley Marina at 1254, that leaves at least an extra 15 minutes where you're like, hmm. Because he also had 20 minutes before from 10.08 to 10.30 when he's on the computer where he's either putting Lacey in the boat, dead, or he's hooking the boat up. But what about those extra 15 minutes to get there? Maybe that's when he put the trailer on the truck. We're not really sure. Scott puts his boat in the water and fishes from 12.55 to 2.11 in the afternoon. Eyewitnesses will say that they saw Scott at the Berkeley Marina. So this is also corroborated that he was there. The parking ticket receipt also shows that he is there at 12.54. Scott leaves the marina at 3.25 in the afternoon after getting his boat out of the water and back hitched onto his truck. He calls Lacey, but he only gets her voicemail and he says this. Hey, beautiful. I just left a message at home. Uh, it's 2.15. I'm leaving Berkeley. I won't be able to get to Vela Farms to get that basket for Papa. I was hoping you would get this message and go on out there. I'll see you in a bit, sweetie. Love ya. Bye. Scott arrives back at his warehouse at 4.13 p.m. and gets home between 4.30 and 4.45. When he returns, Lacey's car is in the driveway, but Lacey isn't home. The dog is also outside, still on its leash, but the dog kind of gets away pretty often, so Scott didn't think too much of it. So he goes inside, he takes a shower, and he washes his clothes. Again, suspicious. Why is this man showering, and why is he washing his clothes? Because that's what a killer does, right? I... I I don't know because he had just gotten back from fishing and I mean, I don't fish, but I know people who do. And once you're done, you're pretty wet. You can smell bad. Depends on if you caught a fish or not. I don't think Scott did. He, he actually left his lures in the truck, so he wasn't even able to fish, but that's besides the point. Anyway, he probably smelled bad. He was planning on going to a Christmas Eve dinner with Lacey to go to her parents' house and he wanted to not smell like a fish. Um, he also washed his clothes all the time. Um, he worked with a fertilizer company that deals with chemicals all the time. He has an eight month pregnant wife. I mean, he just tended to wash his clothes. I don't think it was anything too sinister, but that's up for you to decide. Now, because Lacey's car was in the driveway, 
he assumed that Lacey's mom had come to pick her up so that she could help prepare for the Christmas Eve dinner. Now the two had plans to meet at four, but because Scott had only gotten back around 4.30 to 4.45 and Lacey didn't answer the phone, maybe he just thought I'll meet her there at six. But when he gets out of the shower, he sees two voicemails. One of them was from him and another was from Lacey's stepdad, Ron Gransky. Ron was asking Lacey if she could bring over some food items for that Christmas Eve dinner. And that's when Scott started to panic. He said, you know, he said to himself, I thought she was already there and now I'm realizing that she isn't. So what's happening? So he calls Lacey's mom at 517. And at first he asks, is Lacey with you? And she said, no. And so Scott starts to panic and he just says, she's missing. Scott completely denies ever saying this, but this is what Sharon's, this is what Lacey's mom says. So Sharon tells Scott, hey, call her friends. Did you even call them yet? And Scott's like, no, no, I didn't. So he starts calling and then he even starts calling hospitals. Like, what if something happened to the baby? What if she had a miscarriage? What if, what if she's having the baby? I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't possible. After no one's heard from Lacey, no one's seen Lacey, Ron Gransky calls 911 to report Lacey is missing. By 6.50, Modesto police arrive at the Peterson's home. Al Brocchini is the first detective on the scene. We'll be talking a lot about him, so try to remember his name. Um, I'm gonna go, I'm just gonna be honest here. I don't like Al Brocchini. Um, I don't think he's a bad detective at all. I just think that he had, I just think that he had tunnel vision. There was nothing else in his mind from day one. That was it. That was all he needed. Anyway, Al looks around the house and sees nothing disturbed, nothing's missing. There was no sign of a burglary or anything gone wrong or any foul play. But Al Brocchini does see that Scott is acting a little too calm and a little too OCD. Like Scott had brought out some gloves when the cops were searching the car so that the, do the doors wouldn't hit each other. And a lot of people are like, dude, your wife is missing. Why the hell do you care about this? And I don't know, Scott cared. They also, Scott also made sure that the detectives were using coasters at his house. He's a little, crazy about that which is a little bit odd because once again your wife is missing especially after going into a park that is known to have homeless people in it and I'm not saying homeless people are violent I'm just saying that Modesto is not this great nice place it's not the safest place to be anyway in a later recorded prison call, Scott recalls that one of the detectives was talking on the phone and was saying the husband is acting suspicious. So he really knows that he's being looked into right from day one, right from the first search. Detectives then bring Scott in for a formal interview, and this was between 12 and 1 a.m. on Christmas Day. Now, Al Brocchini does this interview, and... This is where we get all this information from. So that's when I say, if this is corroborated, it's because later on there's eyewitnesses, there's tickets, there's receipts, stuff like that. But if something is not, it's because this came from the interview. And you just, it's like Lacey, what time she woke up. If I don't know what time other people wake up if they wake up before me. You know what I mean? Unless I ask them, but I feel like that's not really... A question I often ask. I don't know if Scott would ask, but anyway, Al Burkini asks Scott if he would be willing to take a polygraph test. And at first Scott says, yeah, absolutely. But can we do it tomorrow? Because I'm pretty tired. You know, this is really making me nervous. The fact that my wife is gone and I want to wait until tomorrow. But Scott calls his dad and says, hey, these detectives are grilling me. And they're asking me to take a polygraph test and should I do it? And Lee says, no, 
do not take a polygraph test and you need to get a lawyer. So the next day Scott goes in and he, you know, they're getting ready to give him a polygraph test and he says, I'm not doing it. Now I don't blame Scott for not wanting to do a polygraph test. They are not admit admissible in court and that's for a reason. Scott even asked Detective Rokini, are polygraph tests accurate? Do you think that they're accurate? And Detective Brokini goes, yeah, I think that they're pretty accurate. That, to me, if someone says, I think that they're pretty accurate, I'm not, I'm sorry, that's not like a 100% thing that I'll be like, yes, I'll do this, absolutely. I don't know, maybe that's just me. But because Scott said that he would not take the polygraph test, police were definitely starting to get even more suspicious. Meanwhile, on Christmas Day, Lacey's friends and family are looking through Isla Loman Park, where she was known to walk and trying to find Lacey. Now, the family had volunteers. Police were searching. They were searching on foot, on horse. They were looking through the water, the creek beds, and they even started to get dogs out too. It was theorized at first that Lacey had been hurt or kidnapped at the park while she was taking a walk. Police set up a press conference to release the information to the public about an eight-month pregnant woman named Lacey Peterson who had gone missing. Hundreds of volunteers came out to help someone that they didn't even know. The fact that Lacey went on a walk in the first place was also speculated to be true or false. Allegedly, Lacey had reported shortness of breath and dizziness. So her doctor had told her to take the exercise a little bit more easy, maybe stop for a little while and see how she feels. But it is also said that Lacey did continue to walk, um, that she started to feel better afterwards, but you never know. Like if someone's, I've never been pregnant, so I don't know what it feels like to be pregnant, especially at eight months. But from what other people say, they wouldn't be going on a 45 minute walk. But it's different from person to person. I just saw someone on Instagram, you know, doing this exercise, this pretty extreme exercise that even I wouldn't do. And she gave birth that night. So I just, I think it varies from person to person. Modesto police had set up a 24-hour tip line, but this tip line was only run by two people, and they were receiving hundreds and hundreds of tips each day. Many of these tips were sightings of Lacey, not just in Modesto, but even in like Washington, Oregon, all these places, um, and the police did kind of follow up. It's really debated on their follow-ups, and again, we'll get into that a little bit later. But there were at least 21 to 24 tips that said that they had seen Lacey and Mackenzie, their dog, walking that morning on December 24th. Most of these eyewitnesses were never followed up by the Modesto Police Department. On December 26th, police asked if they could search Scott's home again, but this time a more formal search warrant. Now there's two versions of this story. There's Scott's story and there's the police. The police say that Scott completely denied any entry into their home and then they just offered a search warrant because they wanted to see what he was going to say. They wanted to see if Scott would let them in the home or not, which is kind of weird because Scott let them in the home on the 24th, which there probably would have been more evidence then than two days later, but I don't know. Scott said that he was waiting for his lawyer to call him back because remember his dad had told him get an attorney right now. And Scott did. And Scott said that he had called his lawyer, but the lawyer never called back. And so the Modesto police just gave him a search warrant and said, we're searching the home. And Scott never really like said, no, you can't. I mean, he couldn't have anyway, but he definitely didn't protest the search warrant. He just wasn't sure about where to sign and all that kind of stuff. And again, police didn't really find anything unusual in the home. Then they went to Scott's warehouse, which is where they found the majority of their evidence. They found a pair of breasted shut pliers with two strands of hair kind of clamped in between them. Then they also found some powdered cement that was in a bag, but 
mostly gone. So when they asked Scott, hey, what'd you use the cement for? Scott said, I used it to make an anchor. And the police kind of questioned this. When police asked why he didn't just buy an anchor, Scott said that he wanted to make one himself and that the bag of powdered cement was cheaper than buying an actual anchor. And there was a piece of paper with $30 written on it. And then when they asked what the $30 was meant for, he said that he had called a hardware store and asked how much an anchor would cost and they said $30. So then they asked where did the rest of the cement go? And he said, I put it in my driveway and there, and there was this muddy spot, but they found something kind of weird on this piece of plywood. You could see that's where Scott had made the anchor, but there were also kind of four, four to five rings too, that the police had assumed that Scott didn't just make one anchor. He made multiple during Scott's initial interview as well. They noticed that Scott had a cut on his finger. And they asked him, you know, why do you have this cut on your finger? What happened to you? And he said, while he was, you know, getting ready to fish and he was putting this woodworking tool together that he had accidentally cut himself. Now, this is definitely suspicious when your wife is missing that you have some cuts on your fingers. It doesn't make you a murderer. But the fact that they saw Lacey's hair in between some rusted shut pliers that that was pretty weird and i'll even say that myself i hear so many people say you know my hair ends up in the strangest of places too but i don't know in between some rusted shut pliers i don't know about that by december 26 there was a complete media frenzy outside of the peterson's home on covina avenue now the news had just gone into this new cycle of 24-hour news so they have to keep reporting something. And if you lose a story, you're just not really getting anything. Like, what are you gonna talk about? So that seemed like that's all they cared about was getting this new story out. And it didn't matter what they were reporting. It didn't matter if they were telling the truth or not. News reports started coming out after the search warrant that said that the house smelled like bleach. When other news reporters asked police officers if the house did in fact smell like bleach, every single police officer said no, it did not. Many magazines and newspapers would just put out this shocking but unsubstantial headlines just to make some money, in my, in my opinion. Many media outlets also tried to connect the disappearance of Lacey and call Scott a serial killer for murdering a woman named Kristen Smart. Now, Kristen and Scott and also Lacey went to the same college around the same time. Now, Kristen Smart had gone missing during her college years, and she is still missing to this day. When people started to accuse Scott of this, of being a part of Kristen Smart's disappearance as well, the police actually did look into this and they found that there was no evidence that Scott had anything to do with Kristen Smart. In A&E's new documentary, The Murder of Lacey Peterson, Gloria Gomez, a local news reporter, claims that she was able to get insider information from the Modesto Police Department because she was so close to them. She had been on previous cases with them before reporting local news. So they were, they had a good relationship. And one of the detectives from the Modesto Police Department, former Sergeant Ed Steele, had said that Gloria was poking for information about the Scott Peterson case. And then in this documentary, Ed laughed about it and said, look, I'm a sucker, she's gorgeous. Now, I'm not saying that Gloria Gomez reported any false information. I honestly think that she really cared about her reputation and she talks about that in the documentary that she would not release anything unless she had the go ahead. But I am saying that it is possible that Modesto Police Department were releasing false information such as the bleach. Gloria also says that Modesto Police Department had their eyes completely on Scott. There was no one else, there was no other leads and said that if she knew they were looking into anyone else that she would have reported on that, but they weren't. During this time, Lacey's family completely stuck by Scott. They would say Scott had nothing to do with this, that he was a great guy and that the couple was having no problems that they ever even knew about, that they were a team. 
Then on December 27th, a robbery was reported across the street from the Petersons' home. Rudy and Susan Medina had just returned from a vacation that they had taken from December 24th to December 26th. When they arrived home, they realized that a trolley was kind of moved around that shouldn't have been there and their safe was also missing. So they assumed that the burglars had used the trolley to move the safe. The couple had left from about 10.30 in the morning on the 24th and arrived on back on the 26th. A neighbor, Diane Jackson, said that she saw three strange men in a van outside of the Bendina home at 11.40 on December 24th. As she passed, she looked at the men and they were staring right back. She said that she just didn't get a good feeling from these guys and that they were up to no good. By January 3rd, two of the robbers were arrested, Stephen Todd and Donald Pierce. The two admitted to the burglary immediately, but they also said to the police, without anyone even asking them, we had nothing to do with that missing pregnant lady. At first, they said that the robbery had taken place on the 27th, but the Medinas were home by then, so that wasn't possible. So then they changed their story and said that the robbery actually took place on the 26th from 3 to 7 in the morning. Now this could have happened between 3 and 5 in the morning, but not between 5 and 7. Because a local reporter had said that he was standing outside of the Petersons' home by 5 in the morning and said that if he saw anyone there across the street, that he would have asked them to have an interview with him he was looking for anyone and he was like you know my head was on a swivel i was looking for anyone that i could talk to to get some information about scott peterson police asked Stephen todd if he would be willing to take a polygraph test to prove that he was not there on the 24th and that he was there on the 26th so when he took the polygraph test he told detectives that he was with his son's grandfather and the three of them had gone shoe shopping later in the day the polygraph showed that Todd was being truthful, but I kind of think that this polygraph was a bunch of BS. Now, I don't know exactly what was said in the polygraph. All they said was that the burglars were ruled out for the possibility of being involved. But from the information that we've gotten so far, Todd said that they were together later in the day, that they had gone shoe shopping later in the day. Now, that's absolutely possible if the burglar happened from 3 to 5 in the morning. But Diane Jackson said that the burglars were there at 11.40 in the morning. So that's not later in the day. Stephen Todd was on bail at the time of the robbery, and this would have been his third strike. He should have gotten 25 to life, but instead he had gotten seven years and four months of prison time. Following the robbery, Modesto Police Department released a statement saying that if anyone had any other possessions from the Medina's home and from this robbery to please bring them forward with no questions asked. And one day, this woman came into the Vendesto Police Department, dropped some jewelry on the counter, and ran back outside. There were no video cameras or video surveillance of this woman. Then, on December 31st, 2002, a woman came into a pawn shop with a gold Croton watch that was identical to Lacey's. This watch was pawned by Deanna Renfro. Could this be the same woman who ran into the police station, dropped some jewelry, and ran back out? Who knows? Later, the defense conducted a background investigation on Deanna Renfro and found that there were ties between her family as well as Stephen Todd, one of the burglars. Now, I don't know if that's a coincidence or not. We're going to keep talking about this robbery. It is going to keep coming up. I'm just saying that it's a little sketchy. The polygraph is a little sketchy. The timing is a little sketchy. The fact that someone saw a van outside. Now, it is kind of weird that she said that she saw three men, but there were only two men arrested. I will say that, but maybe there was, you know, a getaway man or something like that, or someone that they just never caught and neither Todd or Pierce said anyone else was involved. On January 2nd, 2003, Odesto police released a picture of Scott's truck and boat to see if anyone had seen him on December 24th in the Berkeley area. Since Scott did not take a polygraph, there was no way to corroborate his alibi, so they had to make sure that other eyewitnesses had seen Scott that day in the area that he said he was. Many people did come forward and say that they saw Scott at the Berkeley Marina um, there was one, uh, there were a few eyewitnesses who said that 
he was really struggling to get his boat in the water. There was another one who said he was right on top of the dock when Scott was putting his boat in the water. And when he was asked if he saw anything odd, because if you're on top of the dock and someone's putting their boat in the water, you can basically see right into their boat. So when he was asked if he saw anything odd or, you know, something that looked like a body, or if Lacey was there, he said he didn't see anything like that. The only thing he said was that Scott's boat didn't really belong in the San Francisco Bay. Like I said, his boat was more for fresh water and not really for salt water. Something odd though was that Scott had purchased a fishing license for the days of December 23rd and December 24th. The day before Lacey's disappearance, the 23rd, he had told everyone he was going golfing. But if he had a fishing license to fish either that day, which he did not, or the 24th, why would you go golfing? I know he was much bigger golfer than a fisher, but it just seemed kind of odd that he claimed to have no plans until the very last minute, which was found not to be true. Anyway, all sightings of Scott said that they did not see Lacey and they didn't see anything suspicious in his boat. There's been a lot of reports that Lacey never knew about this boat that was purchased December 9th, two weeks before Lacey went missing for $1,400, but this just isn't true. A woman who owns the warehouse across from Scott's warehouse said that Lacey had came in and asked to use her bathroom the day before she went missing. But by this time, but by this time, no one in the Modesto Police Department really cared about Scott's innocence anymore because they learned about a woman named Amber Fry on December 30th. Amber Fry said that she was seeing a man whose name was also Scott Peterson. Amber was already pretty suspicious of Scott before she found out that the man she was seeing was married and let alone his wife had disappeared. Scott told Amber that he lived in Sacramento and was going to Europe over the holidays. So when Amber asked if there was any way that she could send him mail, he told Amber, yeah, here's a P.O. box or an address in Modesto, but you live in Sacramento. And that's exactly what Amber thought. And she was just starting to get weary of this man that she was seeing. She told some friends about her concerns about Scott on December 29th, and a friend, Richard Bird, a Fresno homicide detective, said, hey, you need to look at this. He found a newspaper about Lacey's disappearance and another man named Scott Peterson. And he asked, is this the same man that you've been seeing? Amber grew pretty worried because again, she thought Scott wasn't married. And then the fact that his wife had just gone missing, it was just too coincidental. So around one to two in the morning on December 30th, Amber calls the Modesto tip line and says that she thinks that she's seeing the man whose wife had just gone missing. Amber told the tip line that she had been seeing Scott for at least five weeks. The next day, when no one had called Amber to follow up with her, she called again. This time, Alberkini was overhearing this conversation. Immediately, he asked Amber if him and his partner could go visit her in Fresno, California. During this meeting, she described how her and Scott met and started a relationship. Amber and Scott met through one of Amber's best friends, Sean Sibley. Sean met Scott at a business conference in October of 2002 in Anaheim. Sean later testifies that Scott just kept bringing up sex, even though she was happily engaged to another man. Even later on in Sean and Scott's friendship, Sean nicknamed Scott Horny Bastard, and he would sign his emails as HB. When Sean was talking about her fiance and ha about how she had met her soulmate, Scott told her, I had met my soulmate once, but I lost her. He then asked Sean if she had any single friends who were looking for a long-term relationship. When Sean brought up Amber, the first question Scott asked was, is she intelligent? Okay, because you're talking about sex and you want to know if someone's intelligent. Okay. Scott and Amber met for the first time on November 20th, 2002. They met at a bar in Fresno, but this was just uh, somewhere to meet up. They planned on going to a Japanese restaurant to have dinner together, 
but Scott said that he wanted to check into his hotel room first. Okay. So Scott brings Amber to check into his hotel room and in his bag, he leaves champagne and strawberries for Amber while he takes a shower. Smooth man, smooth. They eventually get to the restaurant when Scott says he has to go to the bathroom. But when he gets back, he tells Amber, hey, I just got us a private room. So they sit down, they eat, they talk about their mutual interests and they just, they had a great night. They stayed until closing and then they went to a karaoke bar afterwards, sang a song, drank a few drinks, and went back to Scott's hotel room. On their second date, December 2nd, 2002, they went on a hiking trip, but this time Amber brought her daughter. They spent their night hiking, having a picnic, hanging out with Amber's daughter, and then Scott had brought food to make a dinner, so they made dinner, had a few glasses of wine, and Scott stayed the night again. The next day, Scott was working in the same area, so he told Amber, hey, we could still hang out tonight if you wanted to do that. Amber was really excited and happy that it was going really well with Scott and the fact that her daughter really liked Scott. Scott had actually given her daughter a gift, a wrapped up book. So once again, he's really impressing everyone. That day, Amber called Scott saying that she was going to be late with a client that day and asked if he would be comfortable picking up her daughter from school. Listen, I really like Amber. I think that she's so badass. I think she's an awesome woman for coming forward later on. But I think that this was a bad decision. But that night, Amber returned. Her daughter was in her high chair. All was well. She seemed really happy. And Scott was making dinner, you know, had some wine out for her. And then they went to go pick a Christmas tree together. It just seemed like... A happy little family had started within a few weeks. And as they're decorating the Christmas tree together, Amber starts asking Scott some pretty personal questions. She asks Scott, have you ever been married before? And Scott said no. Then she asked if Scott had any kids, and he said no. Scott spends the night at Amber's again, and they have a conversation about trust. Amber tells Scott that she would rather hear the truth than a lie. Yikes! On December 6th, Sean Sibley finds out that Scott, in fact, is married through a co-worker. And she is pissed because she is the one who set up her best friend with a man who is married. But Scott, of course, had a plan. Scott tells Sean, listen, I was married, but I lost my wife. And he's crying during this conversation, completely brokenhearted, it seemed. And he says, please don't tell Amber. I want to be the one to tell her. And Sean tells Scott that if he doesn't tell Amber, that she will. So on December 9th, Scott calls Amber and says, hey, can I come over? He didn't sound too upset just yet, but he would become pretty upset as soon as he got to Amber's house. When he walked in the door, he told Amber, listen, you need to sit down. I'm going to tell you something that's going to make you pretty upset and it might even ruin our relationship. So Amber is just freaking out, you know, like what's going on? What did you do? And Scott tells her, I was married at one point and I lied to you, but it's just because it's too painful to talk about. And when she asks why, Scott tells her, I lost my wife. And he never says, my wife is killed, my wife is missing. My wife had an accident, my wife died of cancer, none of these. Just, I lost my wife. And then Scott tells her, this is going to be the first holidays I'm going to spend without my wife. He tells Amber that because he lied and because they were talking about the truth the other night, that if she doesn't want to be with him anymore, then that's fine and that he understands. But Amber kind of understood, like, this is something painful to talk about. And Scott even said, I tell mostly everyone that I've never been married before because I just don't want to talk about its painful ending, you know. So the two stay together, they continue to have a relationship, and on December 11th, they go to a party at Sean Sibley's house. Before they go, Amber asks Scott how she should introduce him. Scott first says, lovers. But they eventually call each other boyfriend and girlfriend at this party. 
Then on December 14th, they go to another party together, this time a Christmas formal, which this is where all the infamous pictures are. This night, Scott brought Amber three dozen roses. Scott spent the night at Amber's house again, but this time they had unprotected sex. This is how the topic of birth control and vasectomies come up, and this is why a lot of people say that Scott didn't want to have children. Scott told Amber that he really wanted to get a vasectomy anyway, that he didn't want any biological kids. Now, Amber did have a daughter, so she was kind of worried about that, but Scott told her, you know, I'm fine with your daughter, I just don't want to have kids of my own, and I will raise your daughter as if she is my own. Amber was pretty torn about this though, because that's a permanent decision sometimes. But Scott told her, hey, we can go to the doctors together. We can look into this together. And if kids are really important to you, you know, we don't have to do this, but this is just something that I want for right now. The two discussed their plans for Christmas and Scott told her that he was going to Maine to his parents' house and then he was going to Europe for the new year. Scott said he wouldn't be back until the end of January, that this Europe trip was a business trip. Now, because of this business trip, Scott told Amber that he would be traveling less and that the two could finally work on their relationship. So again, I hear a lot of people say that they only saw each other four times and that was it, but they had just gone on four dates, I believe, which was the first date at the Japanese restaurant, the second date, the hiking one, and then they had gone to the two parties together. But they had seen each other way more often. Scott was spending the night. He was taking care of her daughter at times. Like she had gotten stitches on December 10th and he helped clean them up. And the second time he met Amber or he was in person with Amber, Amber brought her daughter along. Like they were starting to create what seemed like a family. So just because they had only been seeing each other for five weeks doesn't mean that this wasn't a serious relationship. After Scott had left Amber's house on December 15th, the morning of December 15th, that was kind of like the last time he ever saw her. Like I said, Scott claimed he was going to Maine, he was going to Europe. So during this time, they were just having phone conversations, but they were calling each other like, every single day. They were talking to each other all the time. So after Amber tells all this to the police, they ask if Amber would mind recording their phone calls. Amber said, yeah, that was fine. You know, whatever we need to do to find Lacey. And so she basically became like a confidential informant for the police department. They went to a radio shack where they got recording equipment and within minutes, Scott is calling. Now during this call, they did lose service. There wasn't really anything substantial that happened, but he did call again on New Year's Eve the next day. So as Scott is at the vigil, while her family is pleading for someone to return Lacey safely, Scott is calling Amber, telling her that he's in Paris, walking on the cobblestones and painting this beautiful picture like there's fireworks everywhere and they're playing American music and this is just so cool while you're at your wife's vigil. This is a common theme for Scott too because as his wife is gone, no one knows where she is. He's calling Amber all the time saying, I want a relationship with you. I want to be with you. I wish I was here. Sketchy man, sketchy. But then on January 6th, Scott calls Amber and says, hey, listen, have you been watching the news? And Amber's like, no, like, what are you talking about? Before this phone call, Amber told Scott that her friend was calling worried for her and she didn't know why. So this made Scott finally admit to Amber that he was a Scott Peterson whose wife had gone missing. And Amber was pissed. I mean, she's known, but this is the first time where she doesn't have to fake it anymore. She doesn't have to listen to Scott's BS conversations about being in Paris and having these time differences and knowing that he's in Modesto where his wife has gone missing. And she's finally able to just let loose and let it all out because she 
is pissed. Honestly, I thought that she was gonna let it all out on the 31st. They were having kind of a late night conversation. Amber was at a party and she was drinking and I think most of us know what happens when you drink, you get a little emotional. And Scott was saying how special Amber was and how much she meant to him and how attractive her self-esteem was. And Amber got emotional about this and just said, yeah, but this has taken a long time for me, Scott. This didn't come easy for me. And eventually she kind of starts, she starts crying. It's really sad, honestly. It's kind of more later in the phone call on the 31st. Eventually she whispers to Scott as she's crying, I deserve more. It was just, it, it hit me. I don't know why, but it hit me because she knew about what was going on. And she knew the fact that Scott was lying to her at this point. And I think that she just knew, like, I thought she was gonna give up like day one, but she really held it out and I think she did an amazing job. Anyway, this phone call on January 6th where she was finally just about to be like, F you, Scott, it was great. I loved it. So let's play it. So again, are you going, is it that you're just not gonna answer me? I want to. And what's stopping you? And what's stopping you from answering? Why, why would you tell me this on March 9th that you've lost your wife and I'm sorry I can't tell you until after I get back to Europe and about this tragedy and, and I asked you are you ready for me? Oh absolutely. This will be the first holidays without my wife. I'm going to spend them in my, with my family in Maine. Is this not what you said? Eventually Scott had to move out of his home in Modesto. The media was just going too crazy on him and and everyone thinks that he wasn't going to talk to the media because of Amber Fry and because of their relationship and he didn't want Amber to find out. But I think he just didn't want to mess up and he did later on. Anyway, his sister Anne offered to let Scott live with her, her husband and her son. But she did note some weird behavior from Scott, like flirting with a babysitter, looking at the San Francisco Bay all the time and just kind of smiling too much. He was just a little too happy while his wife was missing for months on end. Scott had also sold his wife's car because the Modesto Police Department still had his truck. So he needed a new truck to go to work, which I understand this, but What's really weird is that he tried to sell the house. He talked to a real estate agent and said, hey, listen, I want to sell this house. And the real estate agent was kind of confused and was like, but your wife's missing. Like, you know, what if she comes back and there's all this paperwork too that she has to sign and she's not here to sign it. So Scott never was able to sell the house. And then on January 14th, the National Enquirer sent a little heads up to the Modesto Police Department about a picture that they had received of Scott and Amber Fry. Because the police didn't tell Lacey's family about their affair just yet, they kind of had to now before it became public. When police told Lacey's family, detectives say the first thing Sharon Rocha said was, why did he kill my daughter? On January 24th, the Modesto Police Department released a press conference with Amber Fry taking the stage, talking about her and Scott's relationship. She said that she had no idea that he was married and that she wishes the best for Lacey and hopes she has a safe return. Now that Scott and Amber's relationship was out in the public and everyone knew he was okay with giving interviews. And of course, his most famous interview was with Diane Sawyer, where he refers to Lacey in the past tense. During this interview, Scott admits that his relationship with Amber was inappropriate, but that he had told Lacey when Diane pressed Scott about this, saying, your eight-month pregnant wife said that this was okay. Scott just kept saying, you don't know our relationship. You don't know all the facts. He would go on to say she wasn't happy about it, but this wasn't something that would tear apart our relationship. And then the infamous quote. Scott was asked about the marriage. He said, glorious. Lacey was amazing, is amazing. 
Yikes, man. Yikes. Even worse, Diane Sawyer calls Scott out for not mentioning their unborn son once. Not once during the interview. Scott just responded with a hmm and a long pause. When Diane says to Scott, so tell me about the nursery, this is the only time Scott's clearly emotional during this interview. And you can see tears coming down his face. And he says, can't go there. The door is closed. Now, this nursery was a nautical-themed nursery. Was Scott upset because he eventually put his wife and unborn son in the water? Or was he just upset that he may never see his son again? At this time of Amber Fry's press conference, and also the fact that he mentioned Lacey in the past tense, he was guilty in the eye of the public. There was just no, there was no coming back from that for Scott. Even Anne's husband, Tim, told Anne that Scott needed to get out of their house, that he was a murderer and he did this to Lacey. Scott's sister had given Scott some keys to a cabin that her adopted parents owned and said, I'm sorry, you just have to leave. By mid-February, the investigation changed from one missing person to two missing persons. Lacey's due date was February 16th, 2003. Two days after her due date, Modesto Police Department searched the Petersons' home one last time. They still didn't find anything that could help them. February came and went, March came and went, and there were absolutely no signs of Lacey or Connor. The investigation then changed again to a disappearance to a homicide. Okay, this next part may be a little bit graphic, so if you don't want to hear about the bodies being found, I will leave a timestamp below and you can come join us then. On April 13th, a couple walking in the San Francisco Bay Area came across a dead body of a newborn baby with its umbilical cord still attached. On the next day, about a mile away, the body of basically a torso washed ashore as well. This body was more decomposed than the body of the newborn and was seen wearing beige pants and a maternity bra. The body's head was missing as well as most of its limbs. Both the forearms were missing and one leg was missing. All the organs were also missing besides her uterus. By April 18th, the bodies were identified as Lacey and Connor Peterson. The DA told Modesto Police Department that without a body, Scott could not be tried. Now they have both. On the same day, Scott Peterson had plans to go golfing with his family. He had just been so wrapped up in this media frenzy and he wanted just one more day to relax. On his way to the golf course, Scott noticed some unmarked cars were following him. So he called his family and said, listen, I can't come. I don't want the media taking pictures of us and I don't want them to know where we are. So Scott tries to get the media off his tail and just can't do it. He's driving 89, 80, 90 miles an hour, just swerving in and around lanes and just driving really recklessly. Hours into this media chase, Scott eventually says, all right, I'm just going to go to the golf course. I'm going to have a good day and these media can just go F off. And he did flip them off. Upon his arrival to Torrey Pines golf course, Scott parks his car and then he sees police lights flashing behind him. What he thought was the media was really unmarked police cars ready to arrest him as the bodies of Lacey and Connor Peterson were identified. Now, upon searching the car, they found some sketchy. Just, this man is sketchy, okay? They found $15,000 in cash, hiking gear, snorkeling gear, four cell phones, his brother's ID, as well as his own, and a dozen Viagra pills. Great. Well, this seems very suspicious, especially with the fact that he was 45 minutes away from the Mexican border. Scott has an explanation, okay? Of course he does, and Jackie's gonna help him. Jackie's gonna help. As for the hiking and the snorkeling gear, he'd been living out of his car. He bought this months ago, nothing suspicious. Whatever, for his brother's ID, he wasn't gonna use this to get into Mexico, no way. This is just to get a discount, man. 
That's it. Nothing else. Now the $15,000, that's a longer story. So Jackie was going to help pay for Scott's new truck for her other son. Now she had taken $10,000 out of a bank account, but this bank account was actually a joint account with Scott and Lacey. So she was gonna give $8,000 of this money, and she did, to Scott. But when Scott realized that $10,000 had been taken out of this account, um, he asked his mom like, you know, hey, what happened here? Why is $10,000 missing? And you just gave me 8,000. And she was like, oh no, I made a mistake. You know, I didn't know the account number. So she went back, took $10,000 out of her bank account and gave it to Scott. So then Scott paid for a used red Mercedes for $3,600 cash. Now Scott had left all of this leftover money in his car, he was left with $14,440 cash just sitting in his car. It was Good Friday, so the banks aren't open. So that's that story. Of course, there's an excuse for everything, but I really don't think that Scott was going to run away to Mexico. Um, he had already gone to Mexico before. This was days into the bodies being found. So I just, I don't know. Another thing that was pretty weird was the fact that Scott was seen with now blonde hair, like blondish orange hair, to be completely honest. And Scott said that he got this from swimming in a pool. I don't believe that, but I do believe that he dyed his hair for the media. I think that he just wanted to start living a normal life, get away from the media, and he wasn't running from the cops. Like, it's not like he was trying to change his appearance, especially from the police officers. He had gone in to the Modesto Police Department before with his new hair color and all. It just wasn't, it wasn't a new thing to them. Either way, Scott was arrested and charged with two counts of capital murder and was sent to the county jail. On April 21st, 2003, Scott pled not guilty and is held without bail. Scott hires Mark Garagos, a high-profile L.A. defense attorney, and they just go to the races. The trial is set to start on June 1st, 2004. And we'll stop there and pick up in part two. Thank you so much for listening to Let's Talk Crime, and we'll pick up in part two. See you next time.